0: The problem with America, I think, is we're so bred to pick a team, and that's my team. And if you make fun of my, the guy I voted for, I'm going to take it personally and I'm going to get mad at you. I want people to realize the whole thing's broken. Here's why it's broken. I mean, I say it in my special America's like a cult. We've all been lied to in so many different ways about American exceptionalism. And that would be my ideal audience. Everyone is like, yes, this is messed up. And let's make fun of it. And in the laughing, because I've realized when you get somebody laughing, they're more willing to hear a point of view they may not agree with.
1: Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Graham Elwood, calls himself a progressive comedian. He has a YouTube show and podcast called The Political Vigilante and is co-host of the Government Secrets podcast with Lee Camp and now has a one-hour special called Manifested. I enjoyed talking to Graham about how he came to his set of views, built a comedy career and about his current work. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Graham Elwood of Manifest It.
0: This episode is brought to you by Graficacy. Graficacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G R A P H I C A C Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world.
1: Graham, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
0: Hello, my name is Graham Elwood. I'm a stand-up comedian, uh, director, producer, who directed three feature-length documentary films, also host of the the YouTube show and podcast The Political Vigilante, and co-host of the Government Secrets podcast with Lee Camp. That's it, man. I've done a lot. (laughs) Been into War Zones and everything else. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in the Midwest. I I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. My father was a college professor. He was a theater professor at the University of Wisconsin, Madison, and then um, my parents got divorced, and so my mom and brother and I moved from Madison to Evanston, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. Evanston's a very unique place. After the Civil War, when slaves were freed, they came north, a lot of people from the south came north For jobs, there's a lot of jobs in the Chicago area in the late 1800s. Evanston was one of the first places where black people could own property. So my junior high was 60% black. My high school was 40%. Very unique place, Evanston.
1: It was also a dry town, right?
0: Yeah. Oh, God, yes. That's good history. You know, the Women's Christian Temperance Museum was founded there, so you couldn't buy alcohol in Evanston for years.
1: Yeah, I spent one summer during college on the lake there more or less. It was very very lovely in the summer.
0: Yeah. It's a really it's a really cool unique place and I I've, I've got some long-time interesting friends from there as a result. John Updike from Open Primaries is one of them. That's where we met as in high school.
1: And he's the person who recommended you to me for the show. Did you pick up the general political ideology that you have now? from family in Madison and Evanston, or where did it come from?
0: For sure, it was implanted in because Madison was nicknamed the Berkeley of the Midwest. In the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of anti-war protests. So I grew up in a home where, you know, my mom talks about she was doing a play. My dad was a theater professor, and she was in theater in Madison in the late 60s, and Seeing the college kids protesting the Vietnam War, you know, getting beaten up by the cops. I was grew up in a very anti-war home. My uncle, my dad's brother fought in the end of World War II and the Korean War, and he was a Marine and he was in the Chosin Valley. So if you know anything about that story, in the Marine, that's it's called the Frozen Chosen. And they when we when China said don't cross, I think it was the 49th parallel, and then this whole Marine unit was basically surrounded, there's like 40,000 Marines surrounded by 200,000 Chinese, some numbers to that effect. And my uncle survived it. And then when he came back, he wasn't the same guy. And eventually he committed suicide. And so it was always like war's really bad. And But also growing up in Madison, there was the, hey, activism can get out of control. So a bunch of anti-war activists blew up the math building in Madison because they were doing research for the war effort they thought oh it's definitely empty and there was this young grad student new father who was studying late and they killed him and it was one of those things where my mom was like see if you become so tunnel visioned on your on your activism and you think you're right then you can justify something you're against war so you're going to blow up a building to show you're against war and in so doing kill somebody so those conversations were had in my home and my dad being a student of history really ingrained that in me I like learn this is historical because he was german theater he saw how the nazis got the power you know
1: you know someone blew up my second grade classroom flat irons elementary school in boulder colorado that's early 70s for no reason that i th- i think it may have been i'm not sure exactly what the political plan was there, but it was just the strangest thing to have a second grade classroom at an elementary school be the target of, of anything.
0: Yeah. And then think that blowing it up was going to somehow do something about it. So there was that growing up in Madison. And then when we moved to Evanston in the 80s, Madison is like a white liberal college town. And then growing to Evanston, I was very much confronted with the race issue in America very quickly. And there was a lot of like, you know, F you white boy. And I saw what white privilege was. And I saw how, you know, the black community can get targeted. And I started playing football in high school and I saw my teammates get like targeted, you know, and, and I did some knucklehead stuff and me and a bunch of my buddies got arrested by the cops for like shooting bottle rockets out of a car, you know, and we were, we were four white guys and we got slaps on the wrist. And so cut to 3 years ago Jacob Blake I played football with his uncle Justin Blake His dad Jacob Blake senior they both went to my high school And to see how he was shot in the back 7 times and I remember that story I was I went to that same high school in the 80s I got arrested by the cops and I got like ah boys will be boys and if I'd have been a black kid I'd have they'd have thrown the book at me I'd be in the system unknowingly kind of radicalized into this. I didn't even realize that, you know, and then I saw the corruption of Chicago, the mob and how that city is run. And then, you know, I first started entertaining the troops in the war zones in, in, in 2004.
1: Before we skip to that, like, let me try to understand your path a little better. So you get through high school. Do you go to college?
0: Yeah. I went to college at the university of Arizona, which was like, Fun country club college, and I really saw how unique Evanston was, because I got to this college that was primarily white and Latino, obviously because it's Arizona. One of my memories was like I was in so I was a freshman in college, and there were a bunch of guys I had met in the dorms from all different parts of the country, and there was some big apartment complex on a Saturday night, so there was just parties, and it was just all these college kids, and and I heard like house music. Coming out of this one apartment, and I was like, "Oh, let's go there today. My high school always had a DJ, and we listened to rap and hip hop and house music before it was popular in the, in the white community, and these new college buddies of mine, that were all white guys that all grew up in all white areas, were scared. I was like, "Yeah, whatever, it's a bunch of brothers playing house music. let's go let's go hang out." And they were like, "There's black guys there, and I was like, "Huh? why is that Why is that scary to you? And then there was a guy in my class. Because I was a media arts major, I was a film major, who was a black dude who grew up in an all-black neighborhood, and his views of white people were really skewed. And I was like, "Wow, okay." And so I saw, like, "Wow, how America is so... What's the word I want? Just like all these little bubbles."
1: Balkanized.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a great way to put it. We're balkanized, and. Um, so then, I went to college, and I started to become a stand-up comic. I moved back to Chicago after college, and
1: what was the impetus for, uh, you know, stand-up? I think is a I think requires a awful lot of courage. It seems to be a compulsion for some people almost. But what got that going for you?
0: Well, like going again, like having parents that were theater people, we were encouraged to perform as young kids. We put on plays. As kids, I'm the youngest of four. I have a brother and two older sisters, and we put on these plays with other neighborhood kids, and performing was just kind of ingrained in us. All my siblings have performed in one form or another, whether even if it's professionally or not professionally. Like It's all just... So that was there.
1: Do you like the attention of it? I'm a very funny person, but I never would want to get up on stage and show it, necessarily.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I, you know... I think there probably might be some of that, you know, when you're in a big family, there's, there were six of us with my mom and dad and the kids. So you did have to kind of vie for attention. My dad would call it a loud competitive family. So you had to, you know, you had to, you had to make your mark. You know, it was one of those things. I was the class clown. There was some chaos and and traumatic stuff in my home growing up and, and humor was a way to deal with it. And I was one of the funniest guys on my teams always. I noticed when I watched
1: your special that you assume different voices, sort of. You you modulate yourself quite a bit. There's a lot more performance than a lot of stand-ups have within the way that you present. Was that something you developed over time, or did you come into
0: that with that? It was a, a little bit of both. I did come into that just because that was part of sort of my joking around was imitating somebody's voice. We had some crazy teacher and I'd always do their voice and and that would make the class laugh, you know, when the teacher wasn't there or they would hear me and then I'd go to detention. That was part of it. And then also I I started doing sketch comedy and stand-up comedy at the same time. So there was like development of characters and impressions.
1: What was the very first time you performed like that? Is there a way to isolate that. It's on
0: my yeah. YouTube channel. Yeah. The first time I ever did stand up um, and Judd Apatow introduces me and he's got a mullet and acid wash jeans.
1: <laughs> How did it go?
0: It was such a cool experience. I look back now and I'm like, I cringe at the material now, but at the time I was 18, I was a freshman in college. And I was like, I'm doing this. And me and a couple buddies in my dorm were like challenged each other and I fell in love with it. And that was that. And then I started going to open mics and a lot of those were challenging and I was not doing what I was bombing. I was going up at 1130 at night on a Tuesday in front of 16 people in Tucson, Arizona, way off campus. I had to use a fake ID to get in there.
1: But that's how you learn how to do it,
0: right? Yeah. You have to go on stage and you just have to, there's no way around stand up. You can't take a class or you, you have to be on stage in front of a room full of strangers and try. And there's no other way to do it.
1: What was the... Feeling that you got that made it stick for you, though, that you wanted to continue in this? Was it the response of an audience? Was it writing a good piece? What grabbed you?
0: There was that. I remember after doing open mics for probably four or five, maybe even six months, and my material was not going well because I was what typical of a young comic trying to sound like what I thought a comic would. And I went again, I was getting, sometimes they wouldn't even put me up, the club owner who did open mics, or I would go up really late, which was, I hadn't earned it. I wasn't getting any respect because I hadn't earned it. And I went up really late and I had to follow a couple guys that were really dirty. And I was like trying to do my material and I got so mad and I just went on a rant and everyone started laughing. And the comics in the back of the club who never talked to me, barely acknowledged me, started paying attention. It was my first glimpse into, oh, I got to be me. I got to be honest on who I am.
1: Was it hard to reproduce the anger that allowed you to have that rant?
0: Initially, yes. I mean, that's that's the challenge as a comic. You have these little moments where You know, I guess it's like a pitcher where you throw a perfect curveball and then you're the other times you're wild and you're hitting the guy and you're giving him a home run ball or whatever. So you get a taste of that early on where you're like, oh, that's what takes up the rest of your life is getting good enough to where you can recreate that on demand. Was
1: the early comedy that you did political?
0: Very little. Some some of it was, it was more just like observational slice of life. I would sprinkle in little political things here and there, but I really didn't have a political comedic voice. I didn't know how to do it. And there's a couple of times I tried to do like a political rant on stage and there was no punchlines. It was just me yelling or something. And it just, it just, the crowd was like, what? And so I was like, yeah, you got to have punchlines. I mean, I was definitely attracted to watching George Carlin I started doing stand-up in the late 80s, early 90s. And that's when the whole like, first it was called the Ha Channel. Now it's obviously Comedy Central. But that's when like stand-up on TV was all over the place. And I was in Chicago as a young comic in the early 90s after I graduated college. And I got to see Bill Hicks live at the club called The Funny Firm, which is now closed. Um, And I was like, wow. And it was a bunch of us young comics in the back of the room. We were in awe at what Bill Hicks was doing and how he was doing it. And how he would, these scathing indictments of the war machine and the political system, both parties, then could make these, come back around to these brilliant, like, punchlines on it. We were just like, oh. And so, I would try, but also, you're not, especially in this modern age of the big tech companies and everything, you're not encouraged as a comedian to be a political comic you're encouraged to just talk about whatever sex or drinking or relationships or whatever. You can do sort of partisan political comedy saying the other party's bad or this one president's bad. Like it's easy. If you do a bunch of Trump jokes, like that's great. Then there's much to make fun of with that guy. But now, especially it's like, oh, it's too, you're too political. And I've been censored as a result. And you're kind of discouraged from being too political today. And that, that was sort of all the way coming up a little bit. I mean, the people that got the big sitcoms were like Jerry Seinfeld. And I, you know, I like Jerry Seinfeld, but he's deliberately not political, deliberately not controversial. And, you know, Bill Hicks was trying to get a TV show and a sitcom made, and it, he was challenged on that at every turn. So
1: how did you develop the intersection between politics and comedy as you went forward? How did that happen for you? How did you become more politicized in your beliefs, and how did you bring that into your performances?
0: Yeah, I was encouraged to start my own YouTube channel to talk politics because I lost my home in the housing crisis, and I really woke up and saw how it was both Bush and Obama gave the banks one and a half trillion dollars. And when all this information started to come out about Wall Street.
1: Obama wasn't in office yet.
0: Yeah. So Bush Bush gave the, the housing crisis hit in September of 08. Bush was in office. He gave $700 billion. Obama got sworn in in January of '09. He gave an additional, I think, $800 billion.
1: Gave it to the wrong people, you think, or the wrong institutions.
0: Absolutely. I mean, when you see 6 million foreclosures happened, And then when you see what, what Iceland did, Iceland arrested the bankers. And this is that sort of woke me up to, and I voted for Obama twice And I went through this housing thing where they said, well, you're falling behind on your payments. We're going to put you on a forbearance. I hadn't fallen behind my payments. I was just paying them later in the month.
1: You were living where at the time? Los Angeles. What was your career like at that, at that point? How were you putting food on the table?
0: Between 99 and 03, I had done several game shows. I had done over 300 episodes of TV, and I was doing stand-up and starting to get into making movies. And also, every December, I would usually do a lot of Christmas parties as a stand-up, where in one night, you can make what you would make in a week or even a month. And you get a couple of Christmas parties every year, and it's like you're set for several months. When the collapse hit in September of 08, everybody's budgets got wiped out and I lost all of this work. So it was like starting to get like, uh uh-oh. And it affected the entertainment industry. Going through this losing my home where the the mortgage company said, we'll put you on a three-month forbearance. We'll cut your mortgage payment in half. At the end of the three months, we'll restructure your loan. I say, great. Lower payment. This will be perfect. And at the end of the three months, they said, oh, you know what? You don't qualify. And now you're three months behind. I was like, what? And that happened to me under Bush, and then when Obama got sworn in, he passed a new stimulus package, and I was like, Obama will do it. He'll do it better. Exact same thing. Three months forbearance, and then after the three months, they said, you don't qualify, now you're six months behind. It was a 16-month battle, and I eventually lost my home, and then when the information started coming out about the, like the documentary Inside Job, I had a movie podcast at the time called Comedy Film Nerds, and... I had already made my first documentary about going to Afghanistan to entertain the military. And when Inside Job came out and it showed how Goldman Sachs had been in every presidential cabinet since Reagan and how really both parties are just kind of bought and paid for, it really kind of radicalized me again. And I didn't talk about losing my home for years because I was really ashamed about it. And I went on Jimmy Dore's podcast in December of '16. And he was like, how's your condo in Santa Monica by the beach? And I was like, um, and I told him this whole story and he was like, wow. And he said, people are hungry for a guy like you to tell your story because I had been to the war zones and seen like the war machine really work and seen the economic conscription that we have in America. I started doing my YouTube show and
1: joining the military because they, because it's a job because it will pay them benefits and so on. Rather than
0: yeah, rather, it, yeah, yeah, and and you really saw that when I so I've been to Afghanistan three times, and Iraq three times, and Kuwait. I've been on seven military, and you'd started to hear the same story. I'm from fill in the blank small town, America. The jobs were Walmart flipping burgers, deal oxycontin, or join the military. Like that's the options that they had, and you're like, wow. So I started doing my political vigilante show in January of 2017 and really started paying more attention. I started reading people like Glenn Greenwald and Chris Hedges. I read his book, Death of the Liberal Class. And I started going to websites like opensecrets.org that show where the, the donations go into. And I was like, wow, it really, I'm consider myself an independent third-party voter, but I typically vote Democrat more than Republican. I was always like, I don't like the Republican Party. I'm not a fan of the Democrats, but at least they're better. And when I started to see how the money was being spread about pretty equally, I was like, whoa. And then you know, having conversations with my friend John Updike from Open Primaries, who's been fighting the two-party system for decades, he was like, yeah, man, <laughs> this is how the Republicans cheat. This is how the Democrats cheat. And so when I started doing my youtube show, and this is I know this is a long answer to your question of how did I infuse my politics and comedy, I started paying attention and I would go to websites like Truthdig and Mint Press News and learned about Abby Martin and seeing like all these indie media, Medea Benjamin with Code Pink, and really seeing people who were like, you know heard Dr. Cornell West say stuff like." Obama was just the first black leader of the American empire. And I was like, wow, we can say that? Like that was, since some of this stuff was pretty heavy, it was pretty frustrating. I realized I got to make jokes about this. So I was reading this stuff and doing these videos for my YouTube channel. I was like, well, I got to throw some jokes in there. And I started throwing more jokes in there. And Then Ron Placone, who I met at TYT, we both guest hosted this show, Aggressive Progressives, numerous times. And I met Ron Placone there. I just started writing more. I mean, political stuff. I started taking some of older material that was a little political and put it into like a bigger piece about politics. And Ron and I started doing this progressive comedy tour in 2018. We did it in 2018, 2019. Of course, it got shut down during the pandemic, but. And an audience full of like progressives. It was in such an interesting cross section of people. It was like a lot of Bernie supporters, but also like people who realized, oh, yeah, I voted for Trump, but he completely bamboozled me. And they were willing to hear criticisms of Trump and the Republican Party because I was being also equally critical of the Democrats. And so this cross section of people, all different ethnicities and All these like people of color who were like, Yeah, man, the Dems aren't I'm not down with them anymore, you know, and to make these jokes that this crowd really loved that were hard to make in a regular comedy club because the country is so deliberately divided under red and blue. I think that's personally by design. So I started to find this voice and write this material and my social media changed the movie podcast ended in 2019 and I was like, I'm just going to be a full political comic. And there's, you know, I think someone's got to pick up the torch of, of people like George Carlin and, and Bill Hicks.
1: You label and think of yourself as a progressive. What does that mean to you?
0: So progressive to me, I mean, like I say, I'm an anti-war pro labor socialist. That's to me what it means. That's what the left means that that term, Oh, the left is like, and Progressive means, yeah, I'm against war. I'm against the funding of war. I, and I'm for, you know, when I say socialist, I know a lot of Americans, because we were propagandized to believe th- socialism means st- Stalin, the government's going to tell me what job to have. And that's not what my definition of it is. It's we shouldn't have any homeless people. Well, you can be rich under socialism, just no one can be poor. This is the richest country in the history of the world. And it's criminal that there's people living in tents. It's criminal that water's not drinkable. Kids aren't safe from guns. The single greatest reason for bankruptcy is medical debt. It's like you're for Medicare for all, student debt forgiveness, ending these wars, cutting the military budget.
1: I think I understand where you're coming from. What is an ideal audience for you?
0: An ideal audience for me is people that realize the whole political system in America is broken, and we're not a functioning democracy when a handful of rich people control everything. <laughs> the media is corporate. Both political parties are bought and paid for. So pol- an audience is there that everyone in the room realizes, yes, it's broken. How do we fix it? Yeah, great. Let's have a discussion. Let's have a debate on, on all the different ways to potentially fix it. But an audience, an audience that realizes, because the problem with America, I think, is we're so bred to pick a team. And that's my team. And if you make fun of Mike, the guy I voted for, I'm going to take it personally and I'm going to get mad at you. I want people to realize the whole thing's broken. Here's why it's broken. I mean, I say it in my special, America's like a cult. We've all been lied to in so many different ways. About American exceptionalism. And that would be my ideal audience. Everyone is like, yes, this is messed up and let's make fun of it. And in the laughing, because I've realized when you get somebody laughing, they're more willing to hear a point of view they may not agree with. You know?
1: In a certain way, that audience is a Sanders audience, it's a Trump audience. Like Trump is a stand up comic. Right, like he puts on a show, he listens to the audience, he comes back with his favorites, he improves upon them. Like if you read about like how Chris Rock puts together a show, he goes to small venues, he tries stuff, he writes down what works, he iterates on it, and he refines it until he takes it to somewhere where he's happy and and goes somewhere big. And I think that Trump has some characteristics that are Unusual among stand up comics, but he's not an unsuccessful performer. What always worries me about the notion that, you know, that our political system is broken, that both sides are the same, everybody cheats, which I don't actually agree with, but I understand parts of it I do agree with. I think there are functioning parts and there are honorable people, and then there are broken parts and bad people. And there's a kind of a mix. It's much more complicated than that, but you probably would agree. But like, how do you think about the consequences of talking down the system? Right now you have Trump talking down the justice system. Now, any fair look at our justice system would say it is very flawed. There are lots of problems. There's unequal treatment. It's funny to see Democrats right now being totally fans of the FBI. Right. We haven't always been. <laughs> <laughs> right. But
0: <laughs> which I would argue real quick, that's part of the partisan problem is we have to then I'm pro FBI, man. Well, I mean, like, sometimes the
1: FBI is right and sometimes it's wrong and it probably varies by agent. But I think we're in a time where we have a guy running for president again, who is willing to destroy the functioning parts of the country in order to further himself i worry whether any effort to say it's all fucked up isn't almost collaborating with that viewpoint that's why you see a lot of uh you know democrats or liberals defending the the institutions right now when they might be going after him in a different point because someone is savaging them even worse. How do you think about performing in this time? It's really in the time of of Trump that we're in right now.
0: Well, I've always said this about Trump. He's the most vulgar version of what all of our presidents have done. I mean, when Obama came into office, he dropped more bombs than Bush. That's a fact. He dropped more bombs in the Middle East. And that, to me, is vulgar. That's offensive, having been to the Middle East that he did that and i don't think the people in the middle east give a shit that the bombs have rainbow flags on them or whatever i don't think they give a shit so so there's that and what you bring up is a very valid question anything that isn't pro trump is fake and lies and nonsense and so how do i rectify with that is to not go then which is what i've seen liberals do go too far to the opposite direction so then anything trump says i'm against i'm bad trump's against the fbi i love the fbi it's like that's Trump says CNN's fake news. I love CNN. No, no, no. America has such a problem, and it's by design, to find a middle ground with nuance. When I watch the corporate media, do I say it's all fake? No. I see what the corporate media does. They couch it. Sometimes they'll just outright lie, but a lot of times they just give you this frame, you know, like the war in Ukraine. I don't like what Putin is doing. I don't like that at all. But we refuse to acknowledge that we're funding, like, Azov Brigade, which is a neo-Nazi group within the Ukrainian military. We're funding them. We're giving them money. That's a fact. I thought we were against Nazis. Well, when they fight Russians, we're okay with it. Like, this is where we have to really unpack. And from where I'm coming from as a comedian, I don't view what I'm saying as the whole system's broken is dangerous. Because, A, I'm not running for president. I have never been a president. I won't ever be a president. Um, I'm Irish – I mean, I'm not, I'm not a practicing Catholic anymore because that's a whole other podcast of the problems they have. We've had one president, and they put a bullet in his head because he, he tried to end the war in Vietnam, and they killed – anyway, so I'm not trying to be president. So I don't think what I'm saying in a comedy club carries the weight, nor is it as dangerous as a guy that was president, campaigned on a populist. You bring up a good point. Trump's 2016 campaign was populist. His 2020 wasn't. It was just, I'm number one, whatever. Trump and Bernie ran populist campaigns in 2016. Trump's populism had a lot of jingoism and xenophobia and uh, but it was populist and and liberals need to really they don't want to listen to that. They just want to say oh America's so dumb and racist that's why they voted for him. It's like he was populist. He was saying I'm going to bring your job back. The middle of the country's been decimated. So, for me it's let's wake up to the fact it is broken. Here's my view on on Trump's should he be arrested? Yeah, he's broken the law. My thing is then, well, then let's arrest everybody. The Pelosi's, all these people in Congress, Republican and Democrat, are worth tens and in some cases hundreds of millions of dollars. That's impossible when you make 170 grand a year in Congress or the Senate. They all do insider trading. It's documented. So if, if we're going to call out the system, my whole thing is then let's call out the system. Well, I mean, there's a, there's a
1: vast, vast, vast difference between some congressman who makes, you know, never to excuse insider trading. But like, that is a very small part of what's going on in Congress, minuscule. And the corruption at the scale of the former president, $2 billion contracts coming to his family after his presidency. what he's being arrested for is not for generalized corruption, which he uh, has in spades, right? He's being arrested for well, he's got a couple things going, but one of them is secrets and not giving them back. There's a certain sense in which anything you investigated about him, you would find something, right? he That's how he operates. That's not true of the average member of Congress. It's just not.
0: Well, I would argue there, maybe Congress, but I would argue most of our presidents, you could find corruption. You could find war crimes. You could find to arrest them on. Well... <laughs>
1: I, I don't think we arrest people for war crimes, but perhaps we should.
0: This is my problem. Here, this is this is the point, and, and, and I hear what you're saying, Nathaniel. This is a great debate. Um, is if we're going to sit there, this is my my overall problem with America. Trump broke these, like you say, I agree. He, he broke all these laws. He should be indicted, but we could find them with 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 every president. I, the problem I have is the selective outrage. It's like we're going to accuse again. I use Ukraine. Oh. Putin's committed war crimes. There's 377,000 dead people in Yemen. A war started under Obama, continued by Trump, and now Biden. So, I have a hard time hearing. Yeah, it's just too hypocritical for me. We've
1: supplied folks in Yemen, is what you're saying. So we're part and parcel of that.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We've backed Saudi Arabia. Look, they just did it. There was just a story that came out in the Mexican media of anti-tank weaponry paid to put in the Ukrainian army's hand that got sold on the black market that ended up with a Mexican drug cartel. That's not being covered by the American media. I have a real problem with America's hypocrisy and its selective outrage. We have a border crisis. Well, we helped create that border crisis because we sanction these countries, which is an act of warfare. We destabilize them, countries that won't play ball with us And again, going back to my history of how I became a political comedian, I read the book War is a Racket by Smedley Butler. And when you understand the economics of everything, it's hard for me. Yeah, good, arrest Trump. I hope he goes to jail. But I'd like to see all of them in jail, personally. Cheney, Bush, the Clintons, Obama, Biden. I'm good with arresting all of them. I'm
1: not with you there. (laughs) (laughs) But I understand your point there's a difference between personal corruption which i don't think you would see with obama or carter or ford you know and then policy decisions like the second invasion of iraq which clearly was like maybe our worst foreign policy mistake in the history of the country and so consequential for so many people's lives and awful which is continued in in both administrations and is what we did over there with our military the same as what a Putin does? I don't think so. But if a bomb explodes on your building or your village, you get killed either way, right? And it doesn't matter to you, as you as you pointed out earlier, whether the person was kind of a good person who was bombing you or someone who assassinates people all over the world.
0: And that might just be a place where you and I just differ on. And this is because I've been into these war zones. So I'm not saying I'm smarter, or I know more than you, but having seen it firsthand and, and I follow a lot of Middle Eastern independent journalists and they're very much like, they'll show a picture of all the past presidents since nine 11. And they're like, they're all war criminals. <laughs> so I tend to listen to them because they've had their families bombed and blown up. And then when we're going to sit here and call Putin a thug, okay, Russia has 18 military bases worldwide. 18. America has 800. It's a joke I made in my act. America, you know, taking the moral high ground is like a meth head with face tattoos, you know, selling meth to school kids walking into a bar saying, you guys drink too much. So again, if we're going to take this moral high ground and hold Trump accountable, we, and we want to believe that our democratic institutions the Supreme Court, Congress, the Senate, there's this system of checks and balances that we're told the FBI, then let's do it. I don't want to hijack your show with an Epstein talk, but I mean, again, no one has been arrested with all of the ties to that guy. And I interviewed a former child crimes investigator on my show who's like, if I was the lead investigator, I would be rounding all these people up. So, our mutual friend, John Updike says, Graham, I love thing. I love about you is you're an extremist. You, you So I realize that's part of. I'm like, if we're going to do it, then do it. If we're going to clean it up, then clean it up rather than this sort of like arrest one bad guy and say, oh, the democracy is saved.
1: Yeah, well, I, I'm not sure all of the things that you're comparing are apples, but I take your okay. point. <laughs> um, so tell me a little bit more about your political vigilante show? What caused you to start that? You mentioned it a little bit. And what sort of things do you cover and why would people want to tune in?
0: Sure. I try to cover things that the mainstream media isn't going to cover or cover them from an angle that they're not covering them on. Again, I just showed this yesterday. No, two, uh, two days ago on my live stream, this Mexican news outlet showing this... Drug cartel guy in Mexico with American weaponry. And I'm like, if the American media is not going to show that, then I feel compelled to talk about that. I'm a big environmentalist. So I talk about problems with the environment. I cover a lot of like new technology that could reverse climate collapse that's being done already out there. Like, we don't need to wait for some sort of magic solution. Like, these people are doing really good work. And if we just got behind this and put real money behind it, rather than a military budget that has increased every year since 9-11, what if we spent that towards green energy? We could actually reverse climate change. So I try to find solutions. And like I said, I'm an anti-war pro-labor socialist. And to finish the answer to your question, why should people watch my show Political Vigilante? Those are the subjects I cover. And I try to find some humor in the whole situation. And... I also try to find solutions for people because just sitting there complaining everything's broken without a solution is, I don't want, I want to be part of a solution.
1: When you look around at other political comics, who do you, who do you like that's out there? Is there anybody?
0: I mean, my co-host on Government Secrets, the other podcast I do, Lee Camp, I love, he's a really brilliant comic. Ron Placone, who I've done a lot of shows with. I think he's really funny. Eddie Pepitone is really funny. Those are the political comics I really look at right now because there's, again, there's not a lot of Chris Rock will talk a little pol- political and social commentary, which is good. Chappelle a little bit. I'll quote George Carlin. One of the, one of his famous quotes is he's like, it's a big party and you ain't in it is one of my favorite quotes from his special. And then his other famous line after going on a rant is he goes, it's called the American dream. Cause you got to be asleep to believe it um, is like what well, Carlin is, is great. So unfortunately there's not a lot of us like talking politics and the comedic space and and in stand-up comedy, the way
1: is there anybody good on the right?
0: That's a tough one because not that I've seen, maybe I haven't seen a lot of like, man, that's really funny. The comics that just sort of call out the other side. I mean, if someone writes a good joke for me, I'm a, if you write a good joke, it's a good joke. If you make fun of me and it's a well-written joke, I'll laugh. I don't know a lot of right wing comics. There aren't that many of them, and I don't know a lot of them that are like really rock solid funny that I can think of, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's someone out there. I don't know.
1: There's a lot of comics, but there's so few that are really good. It seems like it's a rare, rare combination of things that puts someone at, at a very high rank. What do you think comes together to elevate somebody to the top ranks of comedy?
0: Well, taking aside celebrity, because fame is not necessarily they're the best. It just means they got popular with this fan base. But in terms of like a really skilled comic, I think you have to, like Lenny Bruce said, you have to have a built-in bullshit detector. You have to be able to say, call out stuff. The thing everyone's kind of thinking but not saying, you have to be able to do that. Um, You have to be able to stand out. You know, comics... Most good comics, I know there's a little bit, we all have a little bit of a loner in us, and the loner kind of hangs back and watches all this stuff happen and go, what? You know, we kind of sit in the back of the room and lean over to someone and go, you have to have that. Um, You have to be pretty self-aware to be a good comic. And then I think most good comics that I know have brains that are like really active, almost to a, a fault. Because you have to be, you have to be working on like five hundred things at once, especially when you're on stage. You're going through your set list on stage. The waitress is over there. This guy's talking. You got to focus on here. The lights here. You got to focus on all this stuff. Yeah.
1: I mean, when I first started doing these interviews, I'm like, well over nine hundred of them now. So I've kind of gotten some of the hang of it. But in the first couple hundred, I was really having to concentrate on what would come next while listening and while thinking about what is the interview i want to shape here and how can i change it as in a result to what i'm hearing from the person i'm talking to and and i'm not claiming that i I've, I've mastered it i don't know that anybody has but it's gotten easier i suspect that when you're on stage even if you've done something a bunch of times You're having to have your mind working in different ways, telling the joke, remembering the joke, altering it a little bit for the circumstance, and then remembering your place. What are you going to go to next? Dealing with the audience. It seems like a complicated and challenging profession.
0: Yeah, it is the hardest form of performing, I think, out there again, even separate from music, I mean, bands and musicians can rehearse in their home and get it right and then put it out there. There's only one way for us to really know we have to perform on stage. So it's like Chris Rock does these little small venues and I've seen guys like him try new stuff and they don't crush. He doesn't go out there and just, (laughs) you know, he's fumbling through a new bit that's a okay, premise, but doesn't have a punchline. So you have to like everything, you got to put the 10,000 hours in, but the only way to do it is in front of everybody. There's there's no, and you because can- you,
1: you could even have the same words, it seems like, and but how you deliver them could be vastly different in how successful it is.
0: Absolutely. The wording is so critical. I've worked on the writing of stuff in my apartment and got into writing, down, but I won't know because then you do that and then you'll say some word before the word that you think is the punchline and that word got a laugh and you're like how did that word get the laugh and then you do the big punchline and the crowd's like well we already laughed we we already got and you're like shit how did i how did i you gotta and and then it's a riddle i mean it's a never-ending riddle and and one of the things that inspired me a little over a year ago i was like i'm gonna do my special manifest it, and and i'm like Cause I'd seen all these comics and all the, and I had done two albums, but I'd never done a full special. I had all this political material and I saw the George Carlin documentary that was on HBO that won an Emmy. And he said at age 60 in an interview, I just, now I'm finding my comedic voice. And I went, wow, that was George Carlin was just figuring it out after 30 some years of standup. I was like, it inspired me to go, oh, I'm doing this. And he's just like, I'm staying true to my voice no matter what. He, and you watched that documentary, he had several incarnations. You know, he was this like wacky guy that did variety shows on TV and then became a political comic and then got some notoriety and then was kind of viewed as, oh, he's a has been joke and then went, what? Has been, reinvented himself. Like one of his specials he did right after the invasion of Iraq was like, ah, oh, man, it was just brilliant. And the worst thing a comic can do is go oh i got this like some things might be easier like i know how to structure a joke quicker now than when i was younger but i have to still work on it i have to still push myself i love being on a show and i'm watching the other comics go up ahead of me and they're really good and i'm like oh wow all right i better <laughs> i better i better have my a game if i want to follow these guys and and then the construction of an hour special is is a you know, you're putting together a three-act play, basically. I love that creative process. How was the
1: manifested special received, or how is it being received?
0: People have loved it. It's on All Things Comedy's YouTube channel, which is, you know, Bill Burr is one of the owners, and they're very supportive of what I'm doing. My audience has just immediately loved it, but a lot of people that don't, the whole point is to increase my audience. And People that have never heard of me before, maybe heard of me on some other movie podcast or whatever, they're like, wow, this is great. The response has been awesome. The challenge is the censorship. So first of all, two and a half years ago, my YouTube channel got demonetized. So I can't make any money on my YouTube channel. I have to make money on Patreon and other avenues. And they just said- How can the
1: channel get demonetized? What exactly is happening there?
0: So- I would live stream, and when when you live stream on YouTube, people can do super chats, which is pay you money, and you answer those questions. I can't answer every question in the chat, but if you pay me, and it's a way to support the show, plus the ads that they show on the clips, you get paid those two ways. So they removed my ability to do that.
1: For what reason?
0: Oh, just vague community guideline stuff. I think I talk a lot about Epstein. We did a whole segment on the JFK assassination for government secrets. I call out the war machine. And I think that's why, but I appealed it, you know, you're just, there's no like 800 number to call and get someone on the phone. It's really frustrating. And, and I've appealed it several times. I just filed my third or fourth appeal like three weeks ago.
1: What stops you from just starting another one with a different name or something?
0: I I have, I have another one called Graham Elwood Clips that just is short clips of my standup and stuff like that. Once that gets over a thousand subscribers, you can monetize it. My current channel has 73,000. I used to have 78. They've unsubscribed people from me. So that's been frustrating. I mean, again, Lee camp, who I do government secrets with his whole 250,000 subscriber channel, they just pulled it down because he was doing anti-war stuff. And then so Part of the money I set aside because I, I, I financed the special Manifest It was in promotional money and marketing money. And I have put clips on my Instagram and all my social media, but Instagram specifically. I've grown my Instagram since March from 8,000 to 13,000 followers, which is nice. But I bought five different ads where I took a clip of my act from Manifest It and wanted to what the Instagram and Facebook call a boosted post, so more people will see the clip, follow me on Instagram, and, and eventually go watch the full special on YouTube. All five of them were rejected for being too political. The comedy was me making fun of the media, too political. Me calling out both political parties, too political. Me calling out Jeff Bezos and billionaires, too political. Five of them were rejected for being too political. I'm trying to give Instagram my money, so that, that's frustrating, I had a billboard in Times Square that was rejected for being too political. So I shot the special in October of last year in Chicago, and I had four shows leading up to the Chicago taping. So I had New York City, Madison, Wisconsin, Waterford, Michigan, and Cincinnati, Ohio. I found this company that does digital billboards. They're very affordable. None of the other billboards in other cities got rejected, but this billboard in Times Square got rejected. And here's what it said. It was just promoting a show I was doing. It said Graham Elwood Live, Tuesday, October 18th, 8 p.m. at Broadway Comedy Club, which is right off of Times Square. Uh, tickets at you know BroadwayComedyClub.com, and a picture of me on stage holding a microphone. That was called too political, and it was rejected. So I wanted to test the series to see what was so political about that. What's political? So I res- resubmitted a, a new billboard that said Special Secret Show, Tuesday, October 18th, 8 p.m tickets here and I put a question mark over my face that was approved so so
1: it's your face is the problem
0: yeah I'm the the problem (laughs) this this right here Nathaniel it's a good thing this is an audio podcast because we don't want you to get
1: (laughs) I should have worn glasses to protect myself I guess but well you know I'm not sure I understand that censorship it's a little frightening, honestly. It's one thing if it falls into the misinformation line. So, right. And if you're thinking that Kennedy was assassinated by some conspiracy, then I could see where that would be thought of as as a kind of a conspiracy theory. If you're talking about for our presidents and how they're doing their jobs, to me, that is fundamentally something you should be able to say on any stump in, in the country and I don't get it and it's alarming. It is very tricky right now when you have some people promoting hazardous views who can have that boosted enormously like the Steve Bannons of the world by platforms and by the nature of, of the way information spreads. And But this doesn't seem to fit into that kind of category
0: well it's this is the this is why censorship i'm I'm so like against it because I mean when they a year a little over a year ago just the Department of Justice shut down r t america the russian t v channel and i had i know people that were on that channel and I was like oh they're they're pushing you know pro putin propaganda it was like they're just holding America accountable in the way the American media isn't the problem I have is i can watch steve bannon i can watch alex jones and know that they're full of it but they shouldn't be canceled alex jones i'll use alex jones as a great example right so alex jones has the right to say there's lizard people or whatever he has the right to say sandy hook was was fake he has the right to say that when he targeted said go hassle the parents he does not have the right to that that he broke the law That's not protected speech. He went to court. He perjured himself in court. He's facing fines and everything else. Great. That's, to me, how the law should work. If you watch my show and think, oh, no, I think Lee Harvey Oswald is the lone gunman, even though I'm presenting evidence from a book, JFK and the Unspeakable, is what I was referencing, showing all of this Freedom of Information Act documents. And even if you read that book or watch my video and think, nah, you're a conspiracy theorist. I shouldn't be shut down for that. Isn't this freedom of choice? Shouldn't we be able to go I'm just not going to watch it. I'm not gonna, I never subscribed to Alex Jones. I didn't want to support what he was doing. I never liked him or followed him on any social media. I thought he's just nuts. When he said go hassle the Sandy Hook parents, I'm glad he was prosecuted as well he should be. But you know, when people like they want to cancel Joe Rogan or whatever. I don't agree with everything Rogan says, but he shouldn't be censored and canceled and I've lost my ability to lose money. And here's the other thing I'm going to add real quick. My videos on YouTube still have ads on them. So this is a real problem I have from a financial standpoint. YouTube owned by Google is making money off of my videos, but I'm not getting a piece of it. That's a real problem. So they're censoring me financially and making money for me.
1: You're just their gadget. That's all you are. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think of the Robert Kennedy, campaign for president.
0: There's a lot with him. I mean, overall, I'm glad that there's people outside of the Democratic establishment running within the, the Democratic Party. If it claims to be this big open tent party, the stuff about Kennedy, I don't necessarily agree with.
1: The anti-vax stuff is what has set a bunch of people off against him. But
0: Sure. yeah, That's a huge debate overall. I think a guy like him running is good and the fact that Democrats are like we're not going to have debates is like come on if if you're confident in who you are you should have debates I think that's what a democracy should be we should have different candidates running with different platforms and different views and they get to debate and the american people get to decide that's what should happen when you say no you're not even allowed at the debate it's like I, I don't think I would vote for Robert Kennedy. I'm not going to vote Democrat. I'm going to vote third party. I mean, my guess is I'll, at this point, would vote for Cornell West. He just announced he's moving to the Green Party. So that's probably what I would do. But if there's stuff about Robert Kennedy Jr. you don't agree with, great. Like being mad that he's running. And when people say, even with Jill Stein, oh, she took votes away from the hey, man, this is democracy. The Democrats don't own my vote just because I'm left of center. Like You have to earn my vote, and that's what a real democracy should be. We should have free functioning debates. We should have a discussion and debate. We should be debating vaccines and vaccine mandates. I don't agree with Kennedy on a lot of that stuff. I was in favor of vaccine mandates, and I got crucified by a lot of indie left people. Great. Let's have the discussion. Let's have the debate. Not a screaming match, but a reasonable discussion where we can come up with a solution that's best for the most Americans. And so overall, I'm glad he's running. I'm glad Marianne Williamson's running. I personally don't think you can change the Democratic Party from within. That's my personal opinion. But I'm glad they're running, even though I don't agree with all of them.
1: Well, I don't think you and I agree on a number of things. And (laughs) I will vote for Biden or, or whoever gets the Democratic nomination. But I'm glad to have the chance to have you on my show and let you tell me where you come from. Is there a question I should have asked you that I didn't?
0: i was just say I really appreciate it, too, because I've had some sort of, you know, t- people who are going to vote for Biden no matter what, liberals, just crucify and cancel me because they view me criticizing the Democrats as helping Trump or whatever. So I appreciate you that you're willing to have me on, even if we don't agree on everything and not just scream at me and say I'm helping Trump. Like, I'm glad that you understand how the Electoral College works and... <laughs> I'm registered to vote in California, so it won't matter that I vote for Cornell West, but I appreciate that. And I love all your questions, not just about my politics, but also about comedy. You seem like a fan of, of comedy, which I appreciate because I lo- this is what I've been doing since I was 18. I don't have any marketable skills. And so...
1: <laughs> That's a marketable skill. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for having a, a reasonable discussion and debate. And I hope your audience, even if they don't agree with everything I said. I hope they at least go check out my special and watch it and watch the whole hour. I hope it's entertaining. I hope that my special was at least- Most of it's
1: not political, by the way. Most of it is just fairly funny. So uh, yeah. why not?
0: I, why not? It's funny. And, and even the stuff you might not agree with, I hope it, it at least made you laugh. So I hope, go to grammelwood.com and follow me. And come in my political vigilante and come in the chat. We have a healthy discussion debate in the chat. No one's allowed to be insulting in our chat. If you are, you get put in timeout. So I encourage your audience to come on over and and listen and get engaged and hear different points of view, because if we all just listen to people that agree with us, nothing's going to change.
1: Well, thanks much. Anything else you want to say?
0: Yeah. Thanks for having me. Go to GrahamElwood.com. Follow me. Watch the special. I appreciate the support.
1: That was Graham. He's at GrahamElwood.com.